0: Thank you for listening to the City Lights podcast. You can visit us on Sundays, 10 a.m. at 4100 20th Street in Greeley. We hope you enjoy the message.
1: All right. Well, welcome to church. Hope you guys had a great Labor Day weekend. Uh, my wife and I were um, up in South Dakota uh, doing a wedding for John and Clarissa Seraph. Are they here, John and Clarissa Serif? <laughs> Are they up in the balcony somewhere? Cool. So <clears throat> we're up in... Uh, South Dakota and uh, Custer National Park or State Park, I don't know. Um, and uh, so we're do- I'm doing this wedding, and uh, first of all, we had to delay the start of the wedding because there was 400 head of buffalo that were blocking the road, and some people, they couldn't get to the, they couldn't get to the ceremony. And as I'm doing the ceremony, I can hear some commotion behind me. And I don't really know what it is, but I'm, pre- I'm a preacher, so I'm used to powering through. You know, I'm used to crying babies and different things, so I'm used to plowing. And uh, after the service, after the ceremony, uh, people came up to me, and they're like, do you, do you know what was going on behind you? And I was like, no, I heard some commotion. And they said, those buffalo were heading straight towards us. They're about to, like, come, you know, through us, and this park ranger gets between uh, us and with his truck, gets between us and the buffalo, and redirected them another direction, so... This is while they're like taking their vows, I'm hearing this chaos behind me, so. Anyway, with that, I have two jokes. This one, I, while I was delaying the wedding, I thought of, but then I really botched the punchline, so I'm going to get more mileage out of it. Okay, there were two buffalo that wanted to get married, but after asking their parents for their blessing, they learned that their parents did not approve of the relationship. The The buffalo decided to get married anyway, so they ran off to Vegas to tie the knot. So in the end, they just buffy <laughs> That's not bad, come on. Someone clapped up there, thank you. <clears throat> yeah, I thought of that like right before the ceremony. I'm like, that's funny. And then I, and then I said it and, no, it's better, believe me. And then I forgot the punchline. It was really embarrassing, okay. All right, this one I did not make up. What did the father buffalo tell his son when he went off to college? Bye, son, boom, there you go. <laughs> All right. So, thank you, Pastor Bill. I don't know if you're here or if you're watching online. Thank you for covering last week. Um, appreciate you so much. I heard. I heard it was a good. I heard it was a good weekend. So, um, yeah. They, they clapped for you, Pastor Bill. All right. Well, we've been in a series called "Has God Said?" and kind of the springboard verse is uh, Genesis three chapter. Uh, Genesis chapter. 3 verse 1, it says this Now the serpent, speaking of the devil, was more crafty than any of the beasts of the field which the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Indeed, has God said, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The King James Version, or the NIV says, Did God really say, did God really say that to you? Right? How many times has that happened to us, where the enemy of our soul comes and you've been given maybe a prophetic word or you read something in Scripture? And the enemy of your soul comes and says, did God really say that to you? Did he really mean that? Did he really say that? It was designed to sow a seed of doubt and a seed of insecurity into Adam and Eve. The first question in the Bible was designed to sow a seed of insecurity, which led to the first lie, which led to the first deception, which led to the first bondage, which still exists to this day in this world. okay. But this happens to us many times. Did the Bible really say that? Does the Bible really mean that? Isn't that kind of subjective? Did God really mean that when he said that to you? Okay. Uh, much of what is clearly stated in Scripture and understood in Scripture is being questioned in society today. So that's what we've been kind of going after. I'll do a very brief review. Um, this is going to be part three today, but part one, part one, we asked the question: Are there only two genders? Are there only two genders? Is there such thing as gender fluidity? Um, is there a gender spectrum? Are sex and gender two different things? Or are they the same thing? We asked that question. If you missed that service, you can go back and watch online. I won't even answer the question right now. <laughs> part two, uh, we asked, is the nuclear family really part of God's plan? Is this the best way um, to, for, uh, for his uh, church to be built and for... Um, Uh, The kingdom be established. Is this God's plan? Do traditional families really produce strong societies? Okay, we we talked about in that um, sermon emphatically, yes, absolutely. The nuclear family, strong families produce strong societies. And that is under question in this day and age. Part three, we're going to do. Someone said, you know, you're using the Bible to say God clearly said, but maybe you should talk about is the Bible God's word? And so today, part three, the title of our message is, Is the Bible God's Word? Is the Bible God's Word? I heard a yes over here. How many think yes? I think yes. Is this book just poetic allegory and tall tales, or is it God's Word for you and for me, for everyday life and for eternity? All right? Okay, so first of all, has God said... That the scriptures are inspired by Him. Let's start there. According to the Bible, the Bible claims that it is God's word. So we're going to start there. Second Timothy, um, look at two verses, and then we'll get into some other stuff. Second Timothy, chapter three, verses fourteen through fifteen. It says this. But as for so Paul says this to Timothy. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it. And how from in, uh, infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Okay? First of all, Paul says, the Scriptures are able to make you wise to know how to get right with him, to know how to have a relationship with him. How many think that's an awesome thing, right? That you can read the Bible and know how to get right with God. I'm so glad he didn't leave us as orphans in this world. He... he, he put things in this Bible so that we could be reconciled back to God, okay? Verse 16, it says this, all scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, I love that. It will make you wise for salvation and thoroughly equips The believer for every good work. How many of you want to have confidence in the word of God and be thoroughly equipped to do everything he's called you to do? Okay. Like this is a radical claim. But the Bible says you can be wise for salvation and be thoroughly equipped through the word of God to accomplish and do everything that God has called you to do. That's a major claim. Okay. It says it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. By the way, you may have noticed the word rebuking and correcting. These are not cozy phrases, right? Um, oftentimes, God will intentionally offend the mind to reveal the heart, right? So much of uh, what, I, what I see happening in our world is that, you know, the Bible says we are created in God's likeness and image. And many times what we've done is we've created God in our image, the Bible says, be not conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, right? It doesn't say, create a God in your image, and that's the God you worship. No, we have to find out who the living God is and worship that God, okay? It's not really up for debate for us. But many times, what you'll read in Scripture, it's like, I mean, be honest. Does this happen to you before you read something? I was like, that's kind of offensive, God. That's kind of challenging to me. How many does that happen to? The only honest one here is the preacher, okay? Sometimes I'm offended by the Bible, right that's okay let the Bible offend you if, if it offends you it's supposed to offend you why it's offend your mind to reveal the heart and let transformation take place in your life amen so not everything is cozy in there but listen God he is gentle he is kind but uh, sometimes he he knows when to push he knows when to challenge right you guys um, remember those uh, Dos Equis beer commercials the most interesting man in the world those are so funny to me okay One of my favorite quotes is he's a lover, not a fighter, but he's also a fighter. So don't get any ideas. Okay. I think that's kind of like God. He's a lover, not a fighter, but he's also a fighter. So don't get any ideas with God. All right, guys. Okay. Now the claims on the Bible, if they're true, we have this amazing book before us that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work in Christ Jesus. Okay. Let's look at another verse. 2 Peter 1, 16 through 18. Peter says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Okay, So Peter says, I, we, we saw this for ourselves. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came from him from the majestic glory, saying, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven, when we were with him on that sacred mountain. OK, so Peter is referring to his personal experience with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now watch this, verse 19. He says this, "We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts." Okay? Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by a prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so the Bible's claim of itself is that it was and is the inspired word of God. It's not of a prophet's own interpretation. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit and given the unction words to write down, which were recorded in the Bible, okay? Uh, Peter says they are completely reliable, that these words are completely reliable. Um, I like this, this contrast here that Peter talks about. Verses 16 through 18, he talks about a personal experience that he had. And he, he said, hey, we didn't come with you with these, these cleverly divisive stories, but we came with you, and I have a personal testimony about Jesus. But he said, not only that, we have this prophetic message, the Bible, which is completely reliable. I think that is an excellent picture of how we should walk in our Christian life. Um, uh, the, the, that our testimony is powerful. Your testimony, the world needs it, okay? Um, but your testimony is kind of subjective to people around you. Okay, part of, part of your witness to this world is the testimony of your life. Share that. Talk about that. But also, in addition to that, we have the Bible. And I, I like to say it like this. Where true transformation takes place is where the Spirit of God and the Word of God intersect. Intersect. Okay, we have, we have the Bible, which is the written word of God. But when the Holy Spirit comes and ignites that in our hearts, that is where true transformation takes place. And Peter kind of outlines that for us. He says, I have this experience. I had an encounter with God on the Mount of Transfiguration when I saw Jesus. But not only that, I have the scriptures. And when those things intersect, that's where true transformation takes place in our lives. All right. Now, <clears throat> by the end of this message and next week's message... It is my hope and prayer that you have total confidence in the written word of God as a guiding light for your everyday life and for eternity. Okay. That's my prayer. And uh, with that, we'll get into some content here. I want to highlight six evidences that the Bible is the word of God. Okay. We're going to, we'll camp on two of them this week and hopefully get to four of them next week. The math doesn't work out really well there for me, but we'll see. I was going to do three this week and three next week, and I didn't have time to do that. So um, here are the six pieces of evidence that we want to just touch on, okay? There is the archaeological evidence of the Bible. There is the historical evidence of the Bible. There is scientific evidence of the Bible. There is manuscript evidence of the Bible. There is wisdom in Scripture that is clearly, uh, clearly wisdom, and that is evidence of the Bible, and the last one, which is my favorite, is the prophetic evidence of the Bible, that the Bible actually proves itself to be true through prophetic evidence, okay? So <clears throat> technically, we could take a week or more and touch on each of these. Um, I'm not going to do that, but what I'm going to do, this is going to be more of a sampler from each category. I want to give you a sample of, of some, some truth from each of these categories. And if you want to go deeper, um, hopefully this is kind of whets your appetite and if you want to go deeper, let me point you to a couple resources um, uh, if you want to get more into apologetics and those kind of things and proving that the scriptures are true. Number one, there's a, um, a Christian apologist by the name of Ravi Zacharias. How many have heard of Ravi Zacharias? Amazing, uh, intelligent man of God who actually passed away um, this year, just recently passed away, um, He's uh, in, born in India and he's a, he's a Canadian American apologetist. So he passed away this year. Um, his website is rzim.org. So there it is on the screen. It's Ravi Zacharias Ministries International. Um, and what many people would say about Ravi Zacharias is this you know, Billy Graham of our day, he was the great Christian apologist. Or, I'm um, sorry, Billy Graham was the great Christian evangelist of our time. But they would say of Ravi Zacharias that he, was, he is and was the great. Christian apologist of our time, okay? And so, that's one resource uh, that I would point you to. Another one that I would point you to is there's a book called Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh McDowell. Um, And a great book. Um, This guy actually set out to disprove the Bible, and in the end he wrote, he realized he can't disprove the Bible and he ended up writing a book about how the Bible is true and um, and proofs of those kind of things. So if you want a couple resources, go check those out. Um, Again, this these two messages that I'm going to do, um, they're going to be more of a sampler of those six categories I mentioned. But if you want to you know, go deeper, you can check out those resources. Okay, so uh, evidence number one, archaeological evidence Okay, of the Bible. Um, there is, of course, overwhelming archaeological evidence. Um, if you go, how many have been to Israel and the surrounding areas? Um, there is... Ton, where, everywhere you go, there's archaeological evidence of the scripture. You can stand in places, you know, where, where Jesus said, "You know, woe to you, Chorazim and Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been done in you, uh, if the miracles that had been done in you were done in Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago." You can stand in Chorazim. You can stand in Bethsaida. These places that Jesus talked about. Okay, <clears throat> but um, uh, let me. Um, I want to play a video that just talks about. Very briefly, some of the archaeological evidence of the Bible. You can go yourselves to YouTube or Google and just talk about archaeological evidence. Watch videos. There's so much and so much that's discovered every year in the Holy Land. But we'll, we'll start with this. Go ahead and roll that video.
0: <coughs> You're looking at the heart of biblical Israel, along the route known as the Way of the Patriarchs.
1: This is ancient Shiloh,
0: the place where the Bible says Joshua divided the Promised Land between the 12 tribes
2: and where the tabernacle of the Lord stood for more than 300 years. Welcome to ancient Shiloh. This is uh, the first capital of ancient Israel, and it's a sacred spot because the Mishkan was here, the tabernacle where people came to connect with God.
0: Scott Stripling directs the excavation here, and along with dozens of volunteers, they're digging into history.
2: We're dealing with real people, real places, real events. This is not mythology. The coins that we excavated today, we're talking about coins of Herod the Great, Pontius Pilate, Festus, Felix, Agrippa I, Agrippa II. The Bible talks about these people. We we just, we've got the image right there. That image includes a
0: fortified wall built by the Canaanites. They're finding a treasure trove of artifacts, including coins and 2,000 pieces of pottery a day.
2: Now this one was from yesterday, it's been washed already, so you see the same Mm -hmm. form right out of the ground in yesterday, and these are those handles from the stone vessels. Remember Jesus' first miracle at Cana, they were stone jars full of water. That's that ritual purity culture of the first century.
0: An archeologist looks at these shards as a fine timepiece.
2: Just like your great-grandmother's pottery is different from your pottery that you're using today, and once we learn the pottery, then we can use it as our primary means of dating. Stripling says literally digging into the Bible can change your life. You can read the Bible, you can walk the Bible, but the ultimate is to dig the Bible. You know, when we actually get into the soil, like these students from Lee University, they're, they're literally, it's under their fingernails and in their nose and their mouth and their ears, and they're exposing this ancient culture, it becomes one with you. And sort of like we came out of the soil, and as we dig into this soil, we connect with God and with each other, I think, in a very important way. Archeology span doesn't set out to prove or disprove the Bible. What we wanna do is to illuminate the biblical text, the background of the text. So to set it in a real world culture to what we call verisimilitude. So we get an ancient literary description. Now we have a material culture that matches that. Chris, you're sitting where Samuel and and Eli and Hannah and these, these people that we have read about, they came just like us, needing answers, needing to connect with God, needing forgiveness. He says they dig into the past and find lessons for the present. One of the faith lessons for us is that God is the potter and we're the clay, and even if our lives are broken like these vessels are, God told Jeremiah, after he told him to go to Shiloh and see what he had done, he told him to go to the potter's house and look at a flawed vessel and see how the potter puts it back on the wheel and works out the imperfections. So my faith lesson is this, that uh, yes, we're imperfect, but if we'll allow God, he wants to put us on his potter's wheel and he wants to make us a vessel of honor. Stripling often
0: cites Psalm 102 that says, O Zion, your servants take delight in its stones
2: and favor its dust. Ultimately, Chris, if the Bible is true, then the God of the Bible has a moral claim on our lives. And as we establish the veracity of the biblical text, I hope that everyone watching will just think about that, that God loves us and he has a moral claim on our lives.
0: Chris Mitchell, CBN News, Shiloh Biblical Samaria.
1: Anywhere, everywhere you go in Israel, there is a location that corresponds to a biblical story. Okay? It's it's pretty fascinating. And every year, you can look up from 2018, there's new archaeological discoveries made. 20, uh, 2019, new archaeological discoveries made. 2020. And so, um, now for people who go to the Holy Land, different things stand out for different people. And some people will say, this was the most powerful time for me. This is the most powerful time for me. Again... Um, um, people who do tours and stuff like that, they don't know for certainty everywhere like Jesus stood, for example. So sometimes we're like, well, we think he was over here talking about you know this over here. And there are other times where he's like, he walked up these steps. He, he literally, we know he walked here because this is how he would have entered into the temple. There are places like that in Israel. But I want to highlight one for me when, uh, when I was in Israel, um, which is this, the house of uh, Caiaphas. He's the high priest during Jesus' time. He was the high priest. And um, they say with near certainty, they believe this is Caiaphas's house. And how many know that when Jesus was arrested um, the, the day before his, his trial before Pilate, they held him in the house of Caiaphas. Okay, so there was a, there was a dungeon in the bottom of his house and, um, and they held Jesus in that, um, that dungeon before he could be on trial. So um, I have two pictures. Go ahead and put up the first one. I took this picture. Um, when we're waiting to get down into the, the, the very bottom part, they have stairs there um, where you can get down into the, into the very bottom. They believe this is the room that Jesus actually stood in when he was arrested and they brought him um, to, to pre, uh, before, the, before his trial. And then go to the next picture, which is me, yours truly. Okay. Now, they, they believe with near certainty that this is the room that Jesus stood in. And I don't know, like, for me, that was one of the coolest things when I was in Israel. It's like, he spent the night here. Like, they beat him up. He bled on this floor, you know. And as I'm in this room, that was such a a profound, powerful thing to me. Like, the master was in this room. Like, I had sandals on. You can't tell in the picture. I took my sandals off because I wanted to, like, touch the stone that Jesus walked upon, sat up. I mean, he probably slept in that room. I mean, there are places like this, historical, um, archaeological findings like this, all over Israel, it's so powerful. There's so many, there's an overwhelming amount of them. Okay, if Jesus was actually in that room, I was like, man, he he bled in this place. He he sat in this place. Like it's it's insane. Um, everywhere you go in Israel, it's like that though. And uh, over uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, um, they have uh, where Jesus prayed the night that he was he was arrested. You often go over there and pray. There's olive trees that they they date back to two thousand years. So they must have been just little. Little olive shoots 2,000 years ago, which would have been right near Jesus. These are living organisms that were alive when Jesus was on this earth that are now big olive trees. It's so profound. It's so crazy. And so tons of archaeological evidence. Okay, um, you can look into that more. Again, that's just to kind of whet your appetite. We were going to, by the way, we were thinking about doing a trip to Israel this year. We turned out not to be a good year to do that. So <laughs> if you don't know why, I'll tell you afterwards. Okay, so one is archaeological evidence. There's an overwhelming amount of it. Uh, number two is the historical evidence of the Bible. Now, there are many historical pieces of evidence that coincide with Scripture. They, they find things all the time that are, are um, archaeological evidence, you know, from Babylon, for example, that corresponds to things that are in the Bible that happens all the time. But one thing I want to highlight, a story that I want to highlight, is Jesus' prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. This is a notable one for me and an undeniable um, piece of of history, okay? Let me read this scripture. It said this in Luke 21, 5 through 6. Some of his disciples were remarking about the temple, um, about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left upon another. Every one will be thrown down. Okay. So this is Jesus' prophetic prediction of the destruction of Jerusalem about 37 years before it happened. Okay. Again, the, the, uh, the temple was destroyed in 70. 70- A.D. Now this is a irrefutable historical fact. What happened in 70 A.D.? Um, there was a Jewish revolt from 66 A.D. to 73 A.D. And right there in the middle, the temple was destroyed. But what is most interesting to me about this text is that from history we find out that all the Christ followers, all the Christians, escaped Jerusalem because of Jesus's warning. Okay, um, jump down. Let's see. Let's read verse seven. Teacher, they asked when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Uh, Let's jump down to verse 20. He says this, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the city get out. And let those who are in the country not enter the city. For this is a time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. It will be great distress in the land there will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations jerusalem will be trampled on by the gentiles until the time of the gentiles is fulfilled okay so that's what jesus said we know from history 37 years later the the jerusalem was destroyed but what did the historians of that time say? What did they say about it? Okay. One of the most um, notable and famous historians of that day would be the historian Josephus. He's a, a Jew who was able to record all of these events and actually talked about Jesus in some of his recordings. But this is what Josephus, the historian, which he was also carried off um, into captivity, um, it says this, when, when the, Romans, the Roman legions destroyed Judea and Jerusalem in 70 AD, Josephus says that more than 1,100,000 Jews perished, and nearly 100,000 were taken captive. Um, in Rome, in, in Rome's ancient form, the Arch of Titus, which still stands to this day, depicts Jewish, Jewish captives. Um, in chains being carried off by Roman soldiers and the menorah, the, the seven branch uh, candle, etc. Um, so I have a picture of that. Go ahead and put that up. So this is in Rome. How many of you have ever been to Rome? I've never been to Rome. You've been to Rome. Have you seen this? You know, when you go to Rome and you see like these kind of things like, oh, that's pretty. They had really nice things. Well, listen, this was like a tribute to the guy who destroyed Jerusalem. <laughs> okay, so it was actually a very violent tribute to this man. Um, go to the next picture. Inside of it, this is, of course, the menorah, the, the 7 the seven-branch candle that was carried off from the temple and other things that were carried off from the temple. And this is a tribute to him having sieged Jerusalem and, and destroying it. Okay? But this is what's most interesting to me. While the Jews suffered starvation, slaughter, and capture, their fellow Christians escaped, okay? How were the Christians spared? About 37 years later, before the destruction, Jesus foretold of these terrible events that would follow his death. He warned his followers to immediately flee Jerusalem um, when he predicted these things, okay? The Christian community carefully watched for these signs and followed the Savior's warning, okay? So Jesus, this event that we're talking about, Jesus prophetically foretold it, It's historically backed up and there's tons of archaeological evidence to support it, okay? So it's an irrefutable thing. But again, to me, the most powerful thing was that the prophetic warning, the Christians listened to it and they said, you know what? This battle against the Romans, we're not gonna win this one. This revolt is not of God. We need to get out of here because the Romans are gonna siege this place and take it over, okay? So let me ask you a question today. Because they most certainly knew that they would be carried off into captivity or more likely be killed. But let me ask you a question today. And I'll conclude with this. Are there other prophetic warnings in the Bible that we can heed today? Are there other things in here? You think, oh, how lucky those people were. They had a prophetic warning from Jesus and 37 years later they knew what to do. Well, listen. Listen. We have the scripture today. Are there other prophetic warnings, are there other ways to say that says to live our lives that will equip us to live for God and the and, and help us to live free? We should read our Bibles, huh? Okay, let me read this scripture. Matthew seven, twenty-four through twenty-seven. Jesus said this. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because he it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine is the, and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against the house, and it, and it fell with a great crash. Okay, Jesus said, hearing his words alone is not what will save us. It's hearing his words and putting them into practice that will save us. Okay, many, many things in scripture where Jesus highlights, these are my words for you today. And it's relevant, the Bible is relevant for us today. It's practical for you today, okay? Undoubtedly, we are living in a tumultuous season, the rains are here. The winds are blowing. The streams have been rising, okay? But is it possible to not only survive the season, but to thrive through the season? I believe that this is, I believe this, again, can be the greatest hour of the church. This is not just a season to endure and get through and survive. This is a season for the church to thrive, amen? We need to be. The city on a hill, that shining beacon of hope to this world, amen? The church ought to be the most hopeful group of people that there is, okay? There needs to be something different about you, okay? Church, the word of God is true. It'll make you wise for salvation and equipped for every good work that he has called you to. So with that, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll close here. Father, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for your Bible, Lord. I just pray for every individual here, that we would reverence the word of God, what you've given us, that we would see every page as not having some of God's word in it, but it's actually God's word. It is his word. And so God, I pray that you would just take every individual here on a journey to reverencing and savoring and holding on to every word that is written in scripture, Lord. And Jesus, we thank you that when we build our lives upon your words, Lord, and we put them into practice, Lord, God, we will stand against the test of time. We will stand against trials, Lord, and we will um, stand triumphant before you in Jesus' name. So we release that over you and bless you with that in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thanks again for tuning into the City Lights podcast. We appreciate your support and we'd love to fellowship with you. You can visit us on Sundays, 10 a.m. at 4100 20th Street in Greeley, Be sure to check out our website at citylights.church where you can submit prayer requests, receive info on special events, and find our social media links. We're glad you could join us, and we hope you have a blessed week.